Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that literally has not washed its face in 10 years. It's complicated. I promise I'm cleaning my face somehow, but I'm really proud to say that I haven't bought a bottle of face wash in 10 years. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 130, part of an ongoing series about circularity with a specific focus on circular fashion and how it relates to, you know, slow fashion. Today's guest is sort of a two-for-one of information. Nicole Robertson had a career in beauty, and she's got a lot of great wisdom to share about that, before starting Swap Society in 2017. Swap Society is an online clothing swap that is really redefining how the clothing swap, usually an IRL event, can exist virtually via technology and an alt currency called Swapcoin. So you're kind of getting two episodes in one today. First, we'll hear about Nicole's experiences in the beauty industry, and then we'll shift into the hows and whys of Swap Society. And spoiler, Nicole will literally burst into song at one point, which, you know, we just don't have enough of around here. I will tell you that I am prone to on my own burst into song at any given moment, but it's usually like really weird songs that I've made up on the fly. Um, And mostly only Dustin gets to hear them, but you know, maybe someday I'll take that show on the road. (laughs) July marks Clothes Horse's two-year anniversary. I can't believe it because the time has gone so fast. I've learned so much along the way. I've met so many amazing people, and I feel like I've changed as a person, grown as a person maybe. I'm not really sure, but it's all good. On July 12th, 2020, I released the first episode of Close Horse with my friend Janine as our inaugural guest. I have a very special episode. (laughs) Saying that phrase without irony is pretty funny. I have a very special episode planned to commemorate this incredibly auspicious occasion. I'm going to share my own path from fast fashion to clothes horse, my own journey, if you will. And I receive receive a lot of requests for telling that story, so I'm finally going to do it. And guess what? I want to hear more about your journey, too. What made you start to care more about sustainability, particularly in regards to things you wear, but really just across the board? What changes were most difficult? What were the easiest? How do you think slow fashion could be more accessible to others? And how do you find yourself making changes on a regular basis? Also, do you have any tips for others? Okay, you're asking, what? is an audio essay. Well, it's a recording you make using either your phone or your computer. You email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world and I edit and mix it and add it to an episode. I will not accept written essays for this. I recommend that you write it all out, then record it. It's okay if you make a mistake while recording. I do it all day all the time. Just say that part again, like don't stop, just keep on going and don't stop talking, right? I'll edit it when I put it in the episode. That's what I do every time I record an episode of Close Horse. 
please record in a quiet room away from fans and air conditioners. Trust me, it makes a huge difference and it ensures that Dustin doesn't give me a hard time. You don't want Dustin to give me a hard time, right? The deadline for this project is July 1st, so you have a few weeks to get this done, but don't dilly-dally. Your recording should be anywhere from 3 minutes to 10 minutes long. Some of you have been reaching out to ask if it's okay to submit again if you've been on the show in the past, and of course it is. Close Horse is nothing without its community, and we've, all of us, have been building relationships with one another this whole time. I just returned from San Francisco literally a few hours ago. I was there at West Coast Craft for work, and this weekend I got to have dinner with Danny of Picnic Wear. Yep, my first time meeting her IRL, and I spent the afternoon with Susan Massey, also my first time meeting her, and both felt like old friends because they kind of are at this point, right? So please, share your stories. I want to hear them. I guarantee other people in the community want to hear them, and no one's sick of you. I can't wait to hear what you all send my way. I've been hearing from a lot of you regarding last week's episode about rag houses and the ethical mm, shortcomings of the textile recycling industry. Did you hear the air quotes there? Basically, the consensus is I can't believe, except I'm not surprised, that many of these companies are not paying good wages or providing safe workplaces. Some of you who visit these rag houses pretty regularly have agreed that, yes, something always seemed a little suspicious about the work environment. And many of you have lamented that even the secondhand industry has ethical shortcomings. And it's true. You've all heard that saying, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. The intended meaning there is that anything purchased in a capitalist system, which would be literally anything purchased, right, is inherently unethical because making that purchase indirectly supports a capitalist system that in most cases relies on exploitation. Okay, that's a lot right there, right, to say the least. So let's take a moment to think about that idea again. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. In its purest sense, it says that anything you consume, from food to shoes to jeggings to gas, anything, indirectly and sometimes, to be honest, super directly, upholds a system that relies on exploitation, inequality, waste, and, you know, when you get down to brass tacks, the suffering of living things. Wow. That's a lot to say the least, right? And it's a big it's a big reality to absorb, to process, to figure out what to do next after you know, right? People tend to have one of two reactions to this idea. One is the well, I give up approach of if everything is wrong, I might as well buy a Keurig and have a Shein shopping spree. I mean, I'm not kidding. I regularly see, well, 
There's no ethical consumption under capitalism thrown around verbatim on social media as an excuse slash defense for fast fashion hauls, drinking only bottled water, using the aforementioned Keurig, or just generally being wasteful. I've even heard this phrase, this one really gets my goat, used to defend, get ready, buying items from fast fashion brands that are based on art and designs stolen, completely stolen from small designers and artists. Yes, I see it a lot. Like, well, everything I buy is going to be bad, so I may as well support this company that steals things from other people. What? No, that's not the point of it all, okay? Yes, we exist within some pretty fucked up systems. That's the best way to summarize it, right? But using that as an excuse to overconsume, to acquire yet another haul of something or anything, to support companies that steal from artists and designers, well, that's just some selfish, highly privileged behavior right there. Ultimately, using the idea that everything is oppression to then, you know, fund oppression is the equivalent of throwing a lit cigarette into a burning building because, you know, it's already on fire. Yeah, true, but we don't really need more fire in there, right? Like, there's plenty of fire. Let's not add more to it. It's cynical, it's lazy, and it's it's just so selfish, you know? As we've talked about around here quite a bit, a better world will, without a doubt, 100% require societal changes, larger systemic changes, and yes, personal changes. Climate change and battling that, right, is a great way to unpack that idea. Because if we're going to overcome climate change and really turn this thing around and make this world a habitable place for more centuries of humans and animals, well, a lot's going to have to happen. Industries will need to find a way to lower their own carbon emissions by utilizing renewable energy and changing their infrastructure and all kinds of things that I don't even know because I'm not a scientist, right? To get there, governments will have to pass regulations on all of these industries as well as funding research and development in renewable energy and other efficiencies. Once again, I don't know what those efficiencies are, but there's a lot of them, right? Next, Transport of all types, because transportation is not going to go away. People are going to need to get places. People are going to need stuff to get places. People are going to need to, like, take their cats to the vet, right? Like, there's – transportation's not going to go away, right? So transport of all types will need to switch to renewable energy sources. It will have to become more efficient. And on a personal level, we'll have to switch into electric cars, scooters, lawnmowers. Don't drive them, but you can mow their lawn. You know what I mean? All of these things. They're going to have to change, right? But furthermore, the way our cities and towns are designed will have to change too, Less sprawl, more access to public transportation, more local hubs for groceries, pharmacies, healthcare, education, etc. All the things people need. Veterinarians for all their cats. That's just a personal request. One within walking distance would be sick. But overall, the way our society, especially here in the United States, but in every country in the global north, the way everyone travels through their days will have to change. 
More people have to be on public transportation, riding bikes, carpooling, or just walking places because they can, because the entire structure of our day-to-day existences has changed to accommodate that. Sure, the bigger changes will start at the top, not on the individual level, but everyone will have to change. The same goes for how we consume and how much we consume, from clothes to electronics to throw pillows, all of it. We have to buy less, reuse more, repair things, share things. You know the whole spiel by now. If you're listening to this episode right now, you're in a more privileged position than the people who actually make the things we buy on a mass scale. Use that privilege to make change in your own life and influence others. Yeah. I know the world and its truths get exhausting and depressing, and but you know what? It's only going to get more exhausting and depressing if we ignore it and continue to buy 12 bathing suits when we only need one or two, right? However, you're listening to this episode, so you're probably not falling into that first reaction of, I give up, let's shop. I, I hope not. You're more like the other reaction to that statement. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. You're more like, oh my God, what can I do that isn't harmful to people and the planet? And it's in all caps. And you're just like, your brain is just like going a million miles in a minute. And your arms are flailing around and you're panicking and your heart is just beating so fast. That my friend, as a person who's been in this spot a lot, is a super overwhelming paralyzing place to be. When buying a carton of strawberries fills you with guilt because the container is plastic and you wonder if the workers picking them were exploited and if pesticides were used or water was diverted for irrigation that could have been used for drinking, this is every day of my life and every time I buy something like strawberries. But you know what? Sometimes you just want some damn strawberries and that's okay. For a lot of you, hearing that there was exploitation happening in the textile recycling industry was just gutting, right? Shocking. The last thing you wanted to hear. I get it. A lot of us shop secondhand because it feels so much more ethical and sustainable than buying fast fashion. And as an added bonus, it's often just as affordable as new fast fashion clothes, right? Although obviously... Nothing can compete with some of those prices out there, I know. To hear that even secondhand clothing can be unethical is just, well, it's it's gutting, like I said. It's the worst. It's devastating. But you know what? I'm always skeptical of black and white thinking. You know, like, this is right. This is like 100% definitely right. This is 100% definitely wrong, or this is most definitely 100% the best, this is 100% the worst actual thing, because unfortunately, we're all living within a system where nothing is purely good. And even the purely bad, well, it exists, sure, but unfortunately, even digging into those layers probably uncovers someone along the way who really did have good intentions. I regularly receive a lot of messages asking me what is the best way to shop. 
What's the best brand? What's the best thing to buy? What's the best way to go about it? Best, best, best. Once again, that's like black and white thinking right there. And I unfortunately, I live in the gray area and I've had, it's that's been a hard one, right? Like learning to live within the gray area is really, really hard actually. And it never gets easy per se because like I think as humans, we just want things to be good or bad, right or wrong, best or worst. That's why like BuzzFeed and all these other websites thrive off of top 10 and bottom 10 lists, right? I always take pause when someone reaches out to me to ask me about what is the best thing to buy, place to shop, brand, that kind of thing because those questions feel – kind of like asking me to explain the size of the universe because it's complicated. It's like overwhelmingly complicated. It's like I could drown in the complication very easily. I do a lot of mental exercises when there's something that I need to buy. And this is kind of like I guess I'm telling you this in lieu of telling you what's best or worst because maybe even though I just said I hate best right? I think the best thing you can do is think about things in this deeper way. Like take that moment to think through your options without panicking, right? Without drowning in the gray area. So I always start when I need something with a secondhand first approach. Like if I can find it secondhand, there are a few really obvious benefits there, right? No new materials are created. That item isn't ending up in a landfill instead. I'm not putting money into a billionaire's pockets. In fact, as an added bonus, I might be able to buy it from another person, keeping money within the working class, right? That's that's incredible. Like, okay, what a win. But as you know, we live in this gray area. I can't always find everything secondhand. These systems are not set up for success, right? A lot of stuff isn't even made well enough to make it to secondhand. We all know that. So then I have to go through the exercise of trying to find the best route forward with something new. I try to shop with a local business. I do a lot of research and consideration about what I'm trying to buy, looking for the most long-lasting and easily maintained item. I guess what I'm saying is like no impulsive purchases. I consider if I truly, really, OMG, need this thing, or if there's another way around it, you'll be surprised. I would say half the time there's another way around it. And ultimately, when I do decide, okay, I'm getting my wallet out, I'm buying the thing, I really make a commitment to it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to get the most use out of it. And I'm going to thoughtfully rehome it when I'm done. But once again, we live in the gray area. We're, we sometimes feel like we're drowning in it, right? So even buying something secondhand isn't perfect, right? Even though it seems like it on the surface. Because I might buy it from a thrift store and then therefore I might be indirectly supporting, you know, underpaying disabled workers and paying huge bonuses to executives. I'm looking at you, Goodwill. That purchase might be indirectly supporting the unsafe and exploitative work environments of the textile recycling industry. There is no best, and yet there is a best. See, I'm making this even more complicated for you, right? Buying something new 
definitely means more resources used, the potential for wage theft and unsafe work conditions and a long list of other bad things, things ending up in the landfills. You know, you've heard the stories. These are the things that keep me up at night. And these are the things that give me just this like permanent stomach ache. But before I'm ready to just put my head under this sea of grayness and never come back out of it, I remember progress, not perfection. Acknowledging and accepting that, yes, we are not set up for an easy, best, or perfect option. It's so important. But surrendering to that and giving up is not an option. Making these decisions thoughtfully, assuming the responsibility for the lifespan of the things we buy and own, knowing that nothing is actually disposable, buying less and frankly buying better because we've put so much thought into it before we do it, these things are impactful. There is progress there, especially when we are modeling this behavior for those around us and educating others. Significant change will require a much larger societal behavioral shift, but that starts with us. Social trends, there's something I'm obsessed with, right? I'm always looking for the threads of when they began. These larger trends start with a few people, right? They spread through more and more groups until they become second nature for everyone. Don't believe me? How about women wearing pants? Same-sex marriage. Social media as a means of both maintaining relationships and even running a business. Yes, these were all things with early adopters that spread until they were just another regular thing for everyone. Yeah, listen, I know there are people out there who still haven't accepted same-sex marriage, but wow, they must spend so much time feeling angry every day. And you know what? I hope they figure it out soon and get on board with the rest of us. I guess what I'm saying here is this. You are doing a great job. Don't give up. Keep up the good work. Yes, it's work. It is work. It is 100% all caps work sometimes. But it's important. And while doing the right thing can feel overwhelming, exhausting, frustrating, am I forgetting a negative adjective here? Hard. It's just hard. It's all worthwhile. At the same time, don't get caught up in the pursuit of perfection. Because the world we live in right now is not set up for that. It just, it doesn't exist, right? And sometimes the search for perfection can be the enemy of progress because then nothing happens. Once again, it's all hard, but that doesn't mean you should give up. But know that as long as you're thinking about the things you buy or don't buy, you're recognizing the impacts of them, as long as you're putting in the work, as long as you're putting in the commitment to be responsible and do the best you can, well, you're contributing to larger progress. And that is really important. 
Be proud of yourself and don't give up. I promise you, you have this whole growing group of people who are working alongside you. We see you and we're proud of you too. Okay, well now that I've given you all a pep talk, let's jump into my conversation with Nicole, who I know you're going to love. All right, Nicole, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, I'm Nicole Robertson, and I'm the founder of Swap Society, an online clothing swap for women and kids that makes it easy and affordable to mix up your wardrobe sustainably. That's a great elevator pitch. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Nicole, I feel like we get a lot of people, every person who comes on this podcast, who, whether they work in fashion or they work in some other area, has had a journey that had definitely at least began in nothing to do with what they're doing right now, right? And you are no exception because your background actually begins in beauty. And that's what we're going to talk about first tonight because this is a area that I am both a consumer of and I am obsessed with unlocking the mysteries of it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your career in beauty? Sure. Well, I was a professional dancer and singer and when I was in school and studying all of the various, you know, performing arts requirements, I had to take a stage makeup class. It was a required class. And the teacher was a makeup artist and an actor and a director. And he said, you know, if you're a makeup artist, you'll never have to wait tables. And I thought, oh, my <laughs> God, that sounds so much better than waiting tables. Way more fun. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, what a what great advice! Oh my god, it changed my life. I feel like I need to find him and reach out to him because this was a really long time ago, and who knows if he even remembers me. But I feel like those words had such a big impact on my personal life that I feel like I, I sh- he should just know that. Yeah, I support this. <laughs> Um, But anyhow, so I promptly got myself a job working at a Merle Norman boutique. And so if you don't know what that is, it (laughs) is a really old school beauty brand. And I worked there for a while and I learned a lot about skincare and makeup and how to do makeup. And I used that as as a jumping point to go over to Bloomingdale's Michigan Avenue, where I worked for Yves Saint Laurent Beauté. And I did that for a while. But I was also in school. So I was studying, and I was dancing, and I was performing, and I was, you know, doing a million things at once. Um, And so I and I was pretty good at it. It turned out that I was a, a good makeup artist and also a good salesperson which for anyone who's worked retail jobs, you know, if you sell well, <laughs> you get rewarded. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we can dive into that a little bit more as well. But um, basically, I did that for a while and then I started freelancing. So I was a makeup artist that would do pop-up events. You know, if, if Francois Nars came to town, I'd you know, I, I was in Chicago at the time. So I would, you know, go do an event at all the stores that he was at, or Bobby Brown, or, you know, whatever other, I've worked for a lot of different beauty brands. Um, And so I I did that. And I did some editorial, but Chicago's not a huge editorial city. Um, And, you know, it was nice, it was flexible, and I could still have my crazy 
dance schedule and my singing out at night schedule. And it was all kind of creative and it all tied in together. You know, and then eventually I had opportunities to work for brands and it was enticing. I got my first account executive job with a beauty brand and I did that for about a year. But uh, you know, it didn't pay as well. It wasn't as flexible. And, you know, I went back to freelancing. But then, you know, then I, I got lured back in, you know, I got sucked back mm-hmm. into the corporate side and the promise of a salary and health benefits, <laughs> which I have been without for many, many years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's a feeling I know too well. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> And and so I just really started working for beauty brands on the corporate side. And also then I went on to the retailer side. I worked for some of the early beauty e-commerce sites. Um, I launched a beauty subscription box. I, I did a lot of different jobs within the industry. And had I stayed in the beauty industry... I could have just kept climbing that ladder, but it became a little lackluster for me. One of the jobs that I had was I was a beauty buyer for a very trendy retailer. And, you know, one of the things that I just really learned in that moment was, wow, a lot of people create beauty brands. It's it's insane. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah. I was listening... I, to the to the radio last week, and someone it was like, oh, like now Nicki Minaj has a skin brand or something, and I was like, what? Why? Why does everyone have a beauty brand? Well, they want to make money. They see an opportunity to make money, and but but at the same time, what does a, a singer or an actor in general? This isn't a rule, but what do any of those people know about <laughs> skincare? Right. Or formulating good products or any of that, right? Mm-hmm. But the it's interesting because the inter- the industry has really made it very very easy for people to create their own brands because there are a number of labs that will fill for you and a number, I mean, crazy amount of companies that make packaging. I used to go to a beauty show in Paris once a year, which was a super fun trip. And and actually, I mean, it was great. I got to see a lot of things from around the world that I wouldn't necessarily have seen here in the States. And so it was, it was, it was really cool. I mean, I had a lot of really good times, but I mean, we're talking about massive convention centers filled with what feels like a million vendors selling different types of packaging <laughs> and different types of ingredients. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. But yeah, like it would be a lot. Yeah. I mean, when you go to a beauty trade show, you really see the magnitude of kind of, you know, what's happening on the back end. And, you know, and if you're a buyer, and you're at a place that everybody wants their stuff to be sold, you see more than maybe maybe some other buyers might see depending on where you mm-hmm. are. And I just I just had this feeling thinking, 
oh, the world doesn't need another beauty brand. <laughs> and and some people, though, would come up with something really cool and fun that I loved. I did discover some really wonderful products that way. And I, and I have to say that I love really good beauty products. So anything that comes across while we're talking is negative isn't so much about that part of it as much as maybe a critique of just the world in general, I guess, and and how crazy, how crazy not only fashion, but how crazy the beauty industry has gotten as well. Mm-hmm. I think that the level of consumption is really over the top. I even see it in my Buy Nothing group. I'm really active in my Buy Nothing group. And it's amazing how much stuff people give away beauty product wise. Oh, emptying out the beauty drawer and it's like a, mm-hmm. a huge mountain of fragrance and skincare and makeup. Oh, I used it once. And then it's like, oh, why are people buying so much of the stuff that they don't need? Yeah, um. no, it, the struggle is real, man. You just triggered something for me because I will preface this too by saying that I love makeup. I love skincare. I've been devoted, a devoted carer of my skin for my whole life. And I have like products that I really rely on and believe in. Um, But about a month ago, I ordered something from Sephora for like the first time in a really long time. Mm -hmm. I've just kind of like backed away from the Sephora over like since the pandemic. I was like, I don't think I like Sephora anymore. And uh, (laughs) I ordered something and it was like took like two maybe three weeks to get to me and I was really scandalized by how long it was taking and I was like this is why Ulta is winning this battle by the way and I went on to Reddit and I looked on the Sephora there's just of course there's a Sephora subreddit Subreddit. right (laughs) and I did learn that a lot of people are are really um, upset about the shipping issues but what I learned even more is like people have a shopping problem with Sephora like Mm. Everybody was posting pictures of their hauls, and it was appalling. And I was like, you're not even going to use all this stuff. And I would read the captions. I, it was like an hour or two where I was just laying on the couch getting progressively more upset, where people were like, I've never used this before. I'm going to try this, like, skincare thing, like, all this random skincare that people were buying. And I was like, that's not how it works. <laughs> like, you can't just switch up your products, like, just because. You know, well, uh, well, well. I I might disagree a little bit. I mean, having been a buyer and kind of used a million different products all the time, <laughs> <laughs> I was basically a guinea pig, mm-hmm. and and I was totally fine. I mean, I I don't happen to have any you know beauty product allergies or anything like that, which might make that a little sketchier for some people if they have mm-hmm. really sensitive skin, but. I think that, and this is this is my perspective, I think that so long as you are actually taking care of your skin, the actual products that you are using, they matter, but not as much as people might think it matters or as much as beauty brands want you to think it matters. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of it is just branding and marketing and... I mean, a lot of the products, sometimes things that you might find at Sephora or a fancy department store might be the same exact thing that you're getting <laughs> at the drugstore. <laughs> yep. Um, 
you know, and so I think that a lot of people aren't aware of that, especially bigger companies that have multiple brands under their umbrellas. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what's inside the package is exactly the same as, you know, from from a drugstore brand of theirs might be exactly the same as what you're getting from their (laughs) higher priced item. It's true. I remember the first time someone told me that. It floored me. And then I was like, yeah, of course, of course it is. Like, I get it. Now, not always, right? But it is true. Like, my friend worked as a chemist in the skincare area. Mm-hmm. And she was telling me, this was like 10 years ago, it just like changed my life. She was like, you know, a lot of the larger companies, like, for example, I don't know if L'Oreal is the name of the parent company, but obviously it's like a massive organization and I'm by no means here telling you to go shop L'Oreal but they uh they have they invest so much money in technology and product development that the drugstore stuff you can buy from their lines is really good Mm. I I believe that I mean I I think that I mean I guess that's the point I mean you if I think that you know if somebody were to really kind of pull back the curtain on the beauty industry, I think it would shock a lot of people because all we see are the fun ads of Mm -hmm. the models with the perfect skin and the perfectly applied makeup and they look so happy and perfect. (laughs) And, And it's like, buy this and your life will also be perfect. And it's like, well, maybe, but, but, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like something that I have noticed a lot just as a person who does have a lot of curiosity and interest in beauty products is I have seen the fast fashionification of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, even as far as like some of the fast fashion brands that I worked for a few years ago, not really as much now. I think the pandemic disrupted beauty in a lot of ways, but like pre-pandemic we're sort of like, oh, we should make our own beauty line because that's where the money is. Or we should carry all these other beauty brands. I even look back to uh, Forever 21 launching those Riley Rose stores, which they then had to close during the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my former friends, well, still my friend, one of my former coworkers from Nasty Gal actually helped them launch this like beauty concept. And everybody in the fashion industry, like in that mass fast fashion a segment was like there's so much money to be made in makeup and like you said you can get people to just fill it fill the packaging for you right obviously retailers they're always looking to up the AUS which is average unit sale right like they mm-hmm. want how much bigger can they make each sale and so if they have people that are shopping in their store and they're there and they're buying clothes they have an attentive person that they can get to buy more stuff. And so I think if you think of it from a business perspective, yeah, it it makes sense. It makes sense that more and more clothing retailers want to be a part of the beauty game because they see how profitable the beauty industry is. At the same time, um, yeah, it, it it feels kind of gross to me how it's just over the top. It's just like too, I feel like it's just too much, too much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like there's so much everywhere, everywhere. And I, I like what you're talking about, like how it kind of sells you this promise. Like right now you don't feel great about yourself, but guess what? Like we have this quick fix for it. And I have totally bought stuff for that reason. Yeah, I, I mean, and it 
it's I think one of the big things that beauty marketers prey upon is that insecurity that most women probably have about how they might look at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the part that I really dislike, I suppose, if I were to really dissect it. And, you know, aside from it's like overconsumption and, you know, exploitative marketing. I don't know. Those are the things that I don't like about it. It's kind of like I love, you know, I love really nice skincare, mm-hmm. hair care. I, I know what I love. I have my favorite things. They aren't even all sustainable or natural or echo, but it's kind of like I've spent a big chunk of my lifetime kind of figuring out what the things are that work well for me and that I like. And so, you know, I tend to just gravitate back to those things, you know, without taking this step of kind of trying a million, a million new things again. I think I just had so much of that that I was just kind of like, oh my God, I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> but, but, and, and I love getting a new lipstick every once in a while. I love makeup. I think that, you know, I love wearing makeup. I think that I, I prefer the way that I look with makeup, even if I'm going natural where I, I might not look made up per se I still I still see the value for me personally in doing that and and am I a product of that system sure I you know you could you could say that I that I am but I I think it's fun and creative so mm-hmm. I, I think that that's the part that I really love about it is the creativity. I love that I can do my makeup in a ton of different ways and I just feel a little different or like a different person. I like a lot of variety. I like a lot of variety in my wardrobe. I like variety in how I wear my makeup. I like variety in what I eat. I can't eat the same thing every day. You know, my husband could eat the same thing every day and he, and, and <laughs> he does for breakfast and it's just, that sounds like hell to me like I can't eat the same thing every day I just get super tired of stuff so I'm like I'm a variety person (laughs) yeah I know I get that I'm the same way I I think that makeup just like clothing often you know and beauty as a whole often gets dismissed because it's something that's associated with women Mm -hmm. and like all things that women like it's kind of shit upon by a certain segment of society right and so like you know I've been seeing it like for example like for a month a month or two ago everybody was like all over how terrible true crime content is even though like it's primarily consumed by women or not even though it's primarily consumed by women probably because it's primarily consumed Mm -hmm. by women and I think that there is what people miss with the nuance when they say like oh makeup is stupid it's not essential is they miss that there's a lot of artistry involved in it that it really can have an add to your mental health to your perception of self to your confidence Uh, it's all part of expressing yourself Mm -hmm. and on top of that it is a huge industry that makes so much money like it is a big business so I have I have some questions for you about like what it's like to work in beauty because I've only seen it from afar you know something that I was thinking about this morning as I was hanging out laundry is how the fashion industry itself is really like the people at the top who like bring in the most profit, like bring in the money, really, the people who have the power and the money are men, right? Mm-hmm. And in most cases, they are white men. And then when you go into the offices and see who's actually doing the work, perhaps <laughs> even in the factories, 
it's all women, right? And it's this yeah. industry that is primarily also fueled by women financially, yet, once again, men are primarily who's making, benefiting from the industry, right? So in fashion, that sets people, women up for a very strange, often toxic work culture. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what it's like to work in beauty, and is it like that? Is it so female-powered when it comes to the actual work? It depends on the company, obviously, but I would say, you know, just to give a broad stroke, I think it's very, very similar to fashion in the sense that I think a majority of the people in the very, very top positions are white men. Um, (laughs) Okay, (laughs) sounds about right. Yeah. But... Obviously, it's an industry that a lot of women work in. And there are a lot of women that are, you know, executive level, but probably less frequently the CEO, for example, unless Mm -hmm. unless, you know, it's a woman that started the brand, which changes it. But oh, my gosh, I've worked in some unbelievably toxic (laughs) environments. Um, I don't know why I'm I'm laughing because like... (laughs) That's what, like, my feel like my LinkedIn profile heading should be, <laughs> you know? I've survived toxic environments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's really crazy. And, and obviously, you know, I'm not going to give specific company names or people's names out or whatever. But, I mean, I've had to deal with sexual harassment to the level where I've had to get legal representation. Wow. I've had to deal with having a boss that screamed, you know, 75% of the time <laughs> and yep, was just been like there. really abusive. Um, yeah, I've, I've actually had multiple screaming bosses. And I would say <laughs> that, and, and pretty much all of them have been men. Most of them have been men. So I've, the... The toxic environments, yeah, it's like, oh, well, here I was, you know, working my butt off because I'm, you know, very much that type A, hardworking, all work, no play kind of person. And I'm really working on that. I'm doing a lot of internal <laughs> work and I'm trying. <laughs> I to understand this that. feeling. <laughs> like, this is, I mean, we were talking beforehand and I was like, you know how it is when you just are like, Always work all the time and never say no to anyone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, there was a job that I did where the f- entire first year, I didn't take a single day of Jeez. time off. And, Oof. you know, and then, you know, and then when I finally did want to take some time off, I, you know, I got crap for it, basically. <laughs> you know, where it was yeah. like a struggle to take some time. It's like that kind of environment. I've also worked with some really amazing people, some people that have become some of my best friends. You know, when I worked for YSL way, 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 way back in the day, mm-hmm. I worked with someone who was the man of honor at my wedding, who became one of my closest and dearest friends. And we're still friends. And we work together at other companies after that. And, and you know, I've made so many amazing friendships with people in the industry. So it's also full of really cool, mm-hmm. artsy, interesting people that I love. Totally. But it, but it's But it's a mix. I think a lot of people that work in fashion feel that way. I think that, 
you know, it's like, it can feel exciting. It can feel glamorous, you know, oh, I'm at fashion week and, you know, sitting in the second row or whatever, you know, things that I've experienced, like, oh, I'm getting the the royal treatment at the spa in Paris because, you know, I I bought their stuff, you know, or whatever it is. Like, I've had so many cool experiences, you know, in my career that I, I am super grateful that I've been able to have those experiences. But it doesn't take away the fact that a lot of it is really toxic and negative and, mm-hmm. and hard to deal with when, especially when you are working so hard and, you know, it's like, even if you're doing a really great job, it doesn't mean that you won't be in an abusive environment. Yeah, it's true. And actually, that was like a really hard thing for me to like, finally accept that in some of the places I worked, it didn't matter how many hours I put in a week, or how great my work was, or how much money I made for the company, it was still going to be an abusive environment. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's weird. It's like um like, oh, I'm getting so much from you. Let me let me take more. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh it's 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 inter- it's like leaving that like for me leaving fashion was probably the best thing I ever did for my mental health because I don't feel like someone's going to yell at me at any moment or humiliate me or just expect that I work 7 days a week. But isn't it weird? Isn't it just strange how – and I don't know about a lot of other industries because I haven't worked in a lot of other industries. <laughs> but I can't help but think that that's just so unprofessional. How How is this so pervasive, right? How is this type of treatment pervasive? At the same time, I want to say that – After I left the beauty industry, I actually became VP of marketing for a bioplastics manufacturer, which was totally male-dominated. I mean, almost all men at every level. And, you know, and, and it was a very different vibe. And I remember thinking, oh, nobody hugs in this industry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so used to hugging, you know, you see a a client (laughs) or a colleague and you hug them. And I know that that's not normal in most businesses, but in fashion and beauty, it's totally normal. Oh my God, I know. When you just pointed that out, I was like, wait, you're telling me that other people don't hug (laughs) at work? (laughs) It's very true. I would like hug my vendors, hug different people I worked with. There's a lot of hugging. In the fashion industry. And I think that goes back to it being like, and beauty being these like female fueled industries. It's not to say that everyone who works in the industry is a woman, but the vast majority are. You know, my my first buying job was the company I worked for the longest. We all sat in open seating. Like it was just one huge floor. Mm-hmm. And we sat in rows, very common, right? And there were a couple of offices along one length of the building. And that's where the executives sat. And everybody mm-hmm. in an office was male. And every single person working in the open seating was a woman. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, I'll never get to have an office here. Like, I, I can see that. Here we are. It's the 21st century. And I will never get to have an office at this job. Like, I know. It's a very weird feeling. That Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about. And I, it's. 
It is interesting. I mean, I guess, well, and I mean, we don't have to get into politics, but it seems like, you know, the patriarchy (laughs) is really working to try to kind of, you know, take charge again. But I think that we as women, we are doing so much of the work and we are also the people doing the majority of the purchasing on all different levels Mm -hmm. for our households. We have more power than I think we realize. And I believe that collectively, the more we can come together, the more we can effectuate change, uh, you know, or meaningful change. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually, after I thought about how everybody who works in the fashion industry is a woman, I started to think about how excited I am about how it seems to me that the sustainability and slow fashion movement is led by women. Like, we're finally, we're running the show, you know? (laughs) And that's incredible to me. Of course, it doesn't pay well currently, but, you know, like, it's amazing, right? Like, like maybe, maybe one of the ways we subvert the fashion industry as it exists right now is by taking back the control or take – I guess it's not taking it back because we never had it. Taking the control. Taking the control. Yeah. Yeah. It, that would be cool. I mean, at least as far as – you know, is necessary to really have meaningful change. I mean, obviously, the fashion industry is destroying the planet, (laughs) which is, (laughs) you know, a really big problem. I think that there are a lot of men that are environmentalists that are working to try to make positive change as in that area, but it certainly doesn't seem like that's happening in the fashion side of it. No, it seems a lot. There's just a, like a lot of greenwashing and fakiness and double speak. And uh, there are times where I get really like tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. And I think, oh, they think that we'll fall for all this dumb greenwashing because they think we're not very smart because we're <laughs> women, you know? <laughs> oh, get, get, so get, you can get it. You can get in there. I'm not saying that's true, everyone, but it does seem like it. <laughs> Could someone thought it probably at some point, you know? Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. 
Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. So I, man, I could like talk about beauty all day because it's so fascinating to me. If you were going to dispel some big myths that you think a lot of customers have about beauty, 
I, what would they be? Hmm. <sighs> That's a big question. Well, I would say, and I kind of touched on this earlier, I, I think that this idea that you have to kind of find a certain regimen and stick to it and you can't I hear it match. all the time. I hear it all the time. It's like, well, of course they're going to say that. They say that because they want you to buy everything from them. But... <laughs> But it is possible to mix and match. I mean, if you're doing something really aggressive, like peels and things that, you know, that may, you know, in that kind of case, you know, yeah, maybe maybe stick with one brand while you're doing that. Um, at the same time, it's, it's something where, you know, that's not really true. I, I think that you need to cleanse your face every day. <laughs> You know, exfoliate at least once a week. Make sure you moisturize. Make sure you use an eye cream. It doesn't hurt to use a serum under that moisturizer. I am a big believer because it really does kind of get a higher dose of active ingredients than you would get in a moisturizer. And so I think that, you know, it's just, it's good to take care of your skin. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that one thing people really should pay attention to, though, as well, is what are the chemicals in your products. And this might sound weird to some people because I know some people that are 100% clean beauty all the way. And I and I I do love clean beauty and I even make certain things for myself at home. I think that there's this idea that you have to buy everything at a store and you really don't. For example, you should never buy a body scrub. It's a total waste of money. Just get some sugar or salt and stir a little coconut oil into it and make a paste and bam, you get a fresh scrub and you're just Wow. This is a a great idea. I'm not really (laughs) I mean I definitely exfoliate my face once a week. I use a peel from the ordinary that I swear by. But I don't really exfoliate my body. And now I'm like, should I? Maybe I should. Oh, you should. Yeah. You know, and here, I'm in LA. Here in LA, I haven't been to one since before the pandemic. But they have a lot of Korean spas here. Oh, my favorite. They're the best. And I mean, wow, do they really scrub you and get off? They really do. Yeah. Um, And I'm really missing that. I feel like. It's been so long since I've had an intense scrub like that. I did buy myself some of those little mitts that they use, but I just don't scrub myself for as long or as hard as those no, ladies do. No, it's like so. you have to have the pro. It's it, it's like I used to take myself to the Korean spa every year on my birthday and get the like hour long scrub, Ugh. and you leave like a different person. <laughs> You really do. I mean, you feel better. And if you think about it, your skin is your largest organ. And so, you know, it's important to take care of it. And, you know, at the same time, though, I think another myth and fallacy that a lot of people have, at least in American culture, is that you have to bathe every day. Um, I think that (laughs) for me, it depends on, you know, obviously if I'm working out and I'm getting sweaty, I'm going to bathe, but it's totally okay to bathe every other day. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have to shower all the time, especially if it's winter, if you live in a cold climate and your skin is really dry, you know, the more you bathe, actually the drier it can make your skin. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, 
you know, yeah, taking care of your body, the skin on your body is really, really important. And, you know, the other thing is you don't have to buy a body lotion necessarily. I think coconut oil is amazing as, you know, just for hydrating the body. When I go to the grocery store, I often get a jar for the kitchen and then I get a jar for my bathroom. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> another one is you do, you shouldn't wash your hair every day. It, I'm, I mean, maybe there are people that do that, I guess if you're a swimmer or something. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's really not good for your hair to wash it every day. I wash my hair like every three days on average. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and anyone that's spent a lot of time around hairdressers, which I have, you know, that's been kind of beaten into me, you know, time and time again, like don't wash every day. And you can really see a difference. So I think that oftentimes <laughs> beauty brands, you know, want you to do it more often because they make more money if you use more product. Um, and part of me even wonders if that's sort of where our obsession with cleanliness has come from a little bit. Oh my bit. gosh, I thought the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm constantly conspiracy theorizing to myself, but like about things like this. But then, and I kind of went on some tangents, but I started talking about clean beauty. But Mm -hmm. I'm really, uh, I'm really careful when I'm taking care of the majority of my body. I, I really make sure that things are really clean and natural most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But on my face. I've, I kind of make an exception for my face. And I had a, an, you know, a conversa- this conversation with the owner of a beauty brand once that I was talking with on a, in a, supposedly in a professional capacity. I have a funny story about that, though. But, <laughs> um, you know, and I, and I told him that. I said, well, you know, I, I do use more, you know, non-natural things on my face. And he's like, well, everything that goes into your skin goes into your bloodstream. And I said, well, I know, but I'm also vain and I like my anti-aging skincare. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you like, I, I'm the same way, you know. I There has been a lot of thought lately on social media, I, which I mentioned to you before. People have been sending me these posts that no one should use any skincare at all. And that it's all scab. And I'm just going to say, like, that's just so untrue. Like, I I can say I have an amazing skin thanks to years of very careful care of it. Oh, same. I mean, my skin would not look as good as it does if I didn't take such good care of my skin. You know, when I was a teenager and I got that job at Merle Norman, that was kind of my first dose of of learning from these older women about how to take care of your skin and how important it is. And I think one of the big things that a lot of women do is they wait to start taking care of their skin when they're older, maybe when they're in their 30s and they're starting to see their skin start to get fine lines or start to age, too much sun damage, partying, whatever. (laughs) That's the wrong time to start. I mean, I guess it's better late than never, but the reality is that once that type of damage happens, once you start getting those fine lines and wrinkles – you know, yeah, you can try to minimize them through skincare and treatments, but you can't really erase that, regardless of whatever advertisement tells you that mm-hmm. that can happen. Um, and you better believe that beauty brands are very heavy users of Photoshop. 
So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's definitely a lot of smoke and mirrors. But I think that, you know, sometimes people will say – why does your skin look like that at your age? And it's like, well, I've been taking really good care of my skin since I was in my teens. And and so I think that that's just played a really important role. I also eat a healthy diet. I don't smoke. You know, there are other things that can age the skin that don't necessarily have to do with, you know, use of skincare or what have you, but but it really does make a difference. And so I sometimes, you know, when I am talking with younger women, I'm always like, make sure you start using an eye cream. Got to get an mm-hmm, eye cream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Use it every day, twice a day, morning and night. Use your ring finger, pat, pat, pat. You know, don't pull the skin. <laughs> All the little tips. Um, but I and, – and I get it. I mean, I think that – I understand how some people might be repulsed by the industry because I think it has gotten a little crazy. But I, I think it's – I could not go without skincare. I can't go a day without lip balm. My lips will crack and bleed. I cannot go without moisturizer on my face or skin. My skin is so dry. I just have naturally dry skin. Mm-hmm. I would look ashy and dull and ugh, and it would hurt. It would itch. My skin itches if I don't moisturize it. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> yeah, me either. And, I, you know, I will just say, like, listen – we, you and I are both the sort of people who, like, we care about this, right? We are vain. I'm totally, I am so, I am vain to a fault in some situations. And this matters to me. But it doesn't have to matter to you. And, you know, I mm-hmm. wish I didn't care about getting older or what my face looks like because it's quite a burden at times. Mm-hmm. But alas, that's who I am and I'm not going to deny it. And like spite my face to prove a point, you know? So I do this. It doesn't mean that you have to, although everybody should be wearing sunblock. Everybody. That is true. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Everybody should be wearing sunblock every day on your face. So if it helps you to remember by getting a, a moisturizer that has sunscreen in it, great. I favor the more natural sunscreens as opposed to the chemical ones. So you know, the titanium and zinc oxides, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've gotten a lot better. It's it's not like before when if you used the mineral sunscreens, you know, you looked super white. <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> they've, <laughs> they've really gotten better. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really, I think it's really important to take care of your skin. And, you know, and for, and I think that, you know, uh, exactly. Not everybody needs to care about makeup or skincare, or aging. I think, you know, there's an artist that I follow on Instagram, and she talks a lot about ethics and fashion, but also a lot about, you know, the messages that magazines and beauty brands are sending to us, telling us that we look old and ugly and we need to become better by using these products. And and I totally get and respect it. Like, I love it. I love seeing her work. But, you know, I, I know people that don't shave. I super respect that too. But I'm a shaver. I like to shave. I don't like to have body hair. Am I the product of this weird society that we live in in that respect? Maybe. But I also, like we kind of talked about earlier, I don't know. I mean, how I look and how I come across in the world is is a part of who mm-hmm. I am. And so I guess I just like to have a little control over that. I don't know if that's the right word, but 
No, I to- I totally get it. I think that you know, once again, like <clears throat> a lot of the stuff tends to be dismissed as really frivolous and you know, that part of that is probably a backlash about the like to the way it's been sold to us for so long. Um and a lot of the, you know, dishonesty that is used to sell it to us, mm-hmm. but I don't think that that means there isn't value and caring for your skin or feeling your best and doing what it is that makes you feel your best. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, if you're a woman and you're out there in the public eye or you're a professional and, you know, probably most industries, I think that if you're a woman, for example, that doesn't groom themselves well, you're probably not going to have as many opportunities. It depends on the industry, but... There are a lot of industries where what you wear and how you Mm -hmm. groom yourself is a really important part of the culture and how you're perceived. And so I guess you may as well have fun with it. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. Like, do I think it's fair? No, but it's where we are. And having worked in the fashion industry, these grooming Standards are very high. Like I saw them, like in the beginning, it was like, oh, you better always have your nails done, right? And then it turned into, you better have lash extensions. Like, you know, it like, it got wilder as like time passed because Mm -hmm. beauty became more complicated and more service-based grooming, if you will, became the norm. I mean, like suddenly it was like everyone was getting Botox. Like my friend got Botox at the dentist, you know, like- (laughs) Things just progressed pretty fast. And I think for me during the pandemic and a lot of other people, I was like, whoa, there's like some things I just don't like want to be a part of anymore that I'm not going to do and I feel great. But there were other things I was like, I am going to get up every day and put makeup on. It makes me mm-hmm. feel good. Am I only going to see my husband today? Sure. But I'll still feel good. You know, it helps yeah. me feel like I'm down to do some work. I'm like my best self. It's my like normal life. It gave me, like, a, I think, a sense of normalcy when everything was upside down. And so that's why, like, I have such a complicated relationship with the beauty industry because it is an important part of my life. But I also get frustrated about the hyper-consumption that it encourages. And I think there's a lot of waste. There's so much packaging waste. I feel like it's the industry crazy. has not evolved on packaging at all. You know, there was a point in time, this was a really long time ago, I was living in San Francisco, and this was before there were really clean beauty brands yet, you Mm -hmm. know, but I just started, you know, working in the industry, I was just so aware of the packaging waste, and also the chemicals in the products. And I started experimenting with making some of my own stuff. And I was researching. I was trying to find a company that made glass packaging that was only recycled glass, which at that point didn't exist yet. Like I I Mm -hmm. couldn't even find it. And I had resources for that kind of thing. And I was just not really finding what I was looking for. But ultimately, I didn't have the resources to, at that point, to make my own brand and I know how much it takes to do it and I also was basically a slave for these other companies that I worked for and so it never came to fruition Um, but I had so many fun ideas but at the same time you know then I was a buyer 
And I thought, oh, but does the world really need another beauty brand? I know I keep saying that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're (laughs) like, even despite, I mean, I'm sure like the pandemic had a massive impact on the beauty industry. Like I was hearing like, oh, skincare is up. Like lipstick is down, you know, like that kind of thing. It totally makes sense to me. But I feel like there are more brands than ever right now. So here's something interesting to think about. You were talking about like certain product categories doing well. You know, it's it might you might find this interesting, but even in times of recession and economic hardship, there are a few things that people still buy. One is booze. <laughs> Adds up. Okay. And then the other one is is makeup. Oh, doesn't Cosmetics. surprise me at all because even when I was at my most broke I would, like, find myself at Walgreens at, like, midnight perusing the <laughs> aisles for, like, yet another shimmery pink eyeshadow. It was the odds, okay? Or, yeah. you know, another, like, a L'Oreal lip gloss in the same pinkish nude that I had, like, in 30 other incarnations, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's something where I think, you know, psychologically, you know, buying a new tube of lipstick, even if it's a fancy brand – and it doesn't make sense financially if you're trying to kind of like rein in, you know, rein in your spending. It's still something small and inexpensive compared to other things that mm-hmm. people might spend their money on. And so I think that it is an interesting thing to think about. But brands are super aware of this, okay? And mm-hmm. so, you know, and and so much of how the beauty brands operate and just as an industry as a whole, and I think the fashion industry is similar, is based on data, right? Mm -hmm. They're collecting all of this data on consumer behavior and what they're purchasing and when they purchase it and why and and all of those sorts of things. And so it's uh, there's a certain really interesting rhythm to it when you're on the business side of it that's that's different than what most people even ever think about. And then the other thing that I think is, for anyone that might ever consider working in the beauty industry, I think a big myth that people have is that it's just fun all the time. (laughs) It's definitely not. I could tell you that. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to work for a beauty company or a fashion company, and I'm just going to, like, play with makeup all day. And it's completely not that at all. And I, I remember, you know, sometimes I would be interviewing people to work for me and it's it would often be young women that just thought it would be so glamorous and fun to be in the beauty industry. Mm-hmm. And I would always tell them, look, this is an intense industry. <laughs> this is not just playing with makeup. This is a lot of really hard work. There's a lot of analytics behind what we're doing and, you know, just so you know, like that's, you know, these are the expectations depending on, you know, whatever the role was. But I think that (laughs) people just don't really know. Or sometimes I would talk to people and tell them what I did. And I think that a lot of times people did just think it was kind of stupid and fluffy. And I I had this joke that I would say, and I, you know, it would always make my husband, well, he wasn't my husband back then, but my now husband, it would make him laugh where I would say, I like bubbles. 
you know, because I felt like sometimes if I told people I worked in the beauty industry, it, like what they would hear was like, I like bubbles. Oh my gosh. I believe it. I mean, honestly, working in the fashion industry, you get the same same sort of response. You know, I would tell people like, oh, I'm a buyer. That must be so much fun. You must just like go shopping all the time. It's like so glamorous. And I'm like, no, I live on Starbucks protein plates and I work like 14 hours a day and I never don't have a stomachache. <laughs> you know, like that's the reality, right? And and it's not like this fun party. I get why it makes sense for the industry to project that image, but it's like incredibly unglamorous. When I would be traveling with other, my fellow buyers, we would, and especially if we were like at like a market week or something, we would intentionally search for the most unglamorous, disgusting photos of our experience to share. And we'd be like, hashtag buyer's life, like the Starbucks at the convention center with 1,000 phones plugged in and a mountain of trash, buyer's life, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time I did a photo shoot for one of the brands I was working for where it was to kind of like show me at work. And so we <laughs> piled a ton of beauty products on this desk and it wasn't even my office. It was it wasn't even my desk. It was like somebody else's office. It of was just, course. Of you know, course it's like it was. All, it's all setting it up like, oh, what's going to look like the best thing? And and we spread out all of these samples and, you know, and they took pictures of me sniffing things and looking at things and touching things. <laughs> and it was just, it's so out of touch from reality and what <laughs> what really happens. It's all facade. It's all a facade. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like not, well, now that we've ever depressed everybody. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I know. I mean, it's, I think that people need to hear this. Like, I sometimes clothes horse turns into group therapy for people who have survived these industries. So you obviously don't work in beauty anymore. How did you transition out of it? Because I'll tell you, I do get a lot of messages from people who are still in it, uh, like not the beauty industry per se, but in fashion, and they feel so hopeless that they could ever go do something meaningful after this. Sure. Well, you know, my, I I just, I had a really random opportunity to go and work for this bioplastics company. Which is random. Which is, it's random, let's face it. But I was intrigued because I was like, ooh, an alternative to, you know, petroleum-based plastics, something that, you know, I've learned, I know a lot about bioplastics now. And I will say just briefly, they're not a panacea, but there are a lot of great Mm-hmm. uses for them but they do complicate recycling it's very complicated it's very so complicated get- <laughs> i was sad to learn that but that is in fact a great way to describe it <laughs> but i will say that part of what uh, there were a couple of things that interested me in the opportunity one was oh this is so cool and different and it sounds more eco-friendly and and i was interested in that but also i thought can i take my skill set that I've been cultivating all of these years and apply it to a completely different industry. And so I think for me, it was a bit of a way to challenge myself. Also, I felt like, yeah, you know, is 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 that all there is? Are you are you a PJ Harvey listener? Do you know? Oh yeah, of course. You know that like, is that all there is? Is that all there is? You know, like in my mind, like is this it? Is this yeah, it? I'm yeah. do these jobs forever? 
And so <laughs> that was our first musical performance, by the way. Uh, it was oh, lovely. sorry. I just, uh, yeah, cool. We needed Great. it. We needed it. Sorry. I'm glad to hear it. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I just break out into song often. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think, you know, that was kind of like, playing in my head a little bit where it's like is this it I mean yeah, yeah I could go a little bit higher or change companies or maybe do my own thing but is this it like what is this really what I want to do forever right and and so I I took the leap I took the jump it was a company that was excited about my kind of consumer focused experience and I got to do some really cool initiatives and I took the jump. But I remember when I announced that I was leaving the beauty industry, a friend of mine who worked for WWD at the time, who was a, a beauty, a beauty editor, took me to lunch and it was kind of, I, it felt kind of like, like a mental health check. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, are, are you okay? Why, what are you doing? Why yeah. are you doing this? <laughs> What's going on? Um... But I just, I don't know, I just felt like I wanted to just see if I could do something else. And then after I started having kids, I did do some more beauty industry work, but more on the nonprofit side. And, um, you know, so I, it's not like I never went back or did anything, you know, beauty affiliated again. Mm-hmm. But once I started having children, I mean, I worked my God. I mean, well, here's the, this is a funny story in a way. It's not funny. It's, it's like funny, sad. <laughs> my favorite. I, <laughs> um, I was working for this beauty nonprofit and the person that I was working for was actually an old colleague and friend of mine who we used to work together and she needed some part-time help and she knew that I was consulting because I was just working for a variety of different companies while I was home with a baby but I mean I always worked I never did maternity leave because I was always consulting and Mm -hmm. so you know I can't tell you even even before this other beauty industry story like I've been in meetings with the phone on mute and my baby in like a rocking car seat thing that I'm moving with my foot I've also breastfed during meetings um with the baby below the camera oh my gosh (laughs) I mean, I've done all of this That's crazy stuff. That's some serious positioning. Oh, my God. I mean, I have done so many crazy things. But so I was working for this. I was consulting for this company. And, and my, ba- my second baby was early. Mm-hmm. And I had a deadline that was really important to them that they wanted to meet. And because my baby came early, I, wh- I didn't finish it in time. And so... I had my baby on a Friday of a holiday weekend, and the following Tuesday, I worked an eight or nine hour day with my brand new infant on the boppy pillow on my lap with my laptop sitting on the couch. I have a picture of it. My husband took a picture. (laughs) And it's like, you know, and I can laugh at it now, but at the time I was like, well, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't even an employee, right? It was like, well, they... They have this deadline. They're expecting this work to be finished mm-hmm. at this time. And then I remember one time that friend said, wow, that's so crazy that you worked like that so soon after having the baby. And in my mind, I'm like, well, you never pushed the deadline back. So what was I supposed right, to do? Right, right. Uh. 
And I, and I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily blame her per se because I just think that it's, it's uh, our culture in general doesn't support mothers. No. Doesn't support people that have just had babies. And their world keeps spinning and their bottom line keeps spinning and all of the work is still expected to be done. And so it's one of those things where, you know, I, I just, I got it done. Yeah. And I think that for me, I'm grateful that I was able to work from home. Uh, a lot of people don't have that benefit. I mean, it's devastating to me to hear how some mothers, you know, have their baby and two weeks later they're back at work. I mean, yeah. or even three or four weeks. I mean, you know, you can't even take a kitten away from its cat mom for eight weeks. So it's <laughs> we're we're not even giving humans. The I know same it's ridiculous. Of time as a cat. It's really appalling, and it's true. Like I had to go back to work like a week and a half after my daughter was born. And I think about that now and I'm like, how did I even do that? Like I was still bleeding, you know? Oh, God. It's Oof. the worst. Yeah, really. I mean, that <sighs> we just don't support mothers at all. Uh, I could go off on that for like six hours. But this company, <laughs> this country is very cruel about that kind of stuff. It really is. I mean, it, and it <clears throat> could be better if, Yeah. It could be so much better. Could be, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you worked for the bioplastics company, which is quite a right turn, a left turn. I don't know. Maybe it's a left turn. Uh, in a weird way, yeah. it makes sense to me, though. Um, so, what happened next? So that so then I started having kids. I started consulting, and I was just kind of working from home, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I wasn't really thinking yet about, it was kind of like consulting was just working with my schedule having, mm-hmm. so so I had my first son and then two years, nine months later, I had my second son. Okay. And and so, and I was consulting and, and I was consulting up until for three, I had actually three clients um, up until the moment I gave birth. And so, but I had told two of the three clients that as soon as my second son was born, that I wasn't going to be able to continue on with the work after that point because I just knew, having done it once, how intense it was going to be, except now I was going to have two. And so I I decided, I picked the one that made the most sense for me, and I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this one of these three companies and and cut back my hours while I have an infant. And so I did that for quite a while. And so I wasn't making anywhere near the amount of money that I had used to make. I mean, it was a massive, massive pay cut, mm-hmm. uh, which we had to adjust to as a family. But we wanted to, as much as we could, make sure that, you know, I could, I, I really wanted to parent as much as I could. So, you know, we've made financial sacrifices to do that. But I I'm, I don't regret it. I'm glad that I did it. But then, you know, and this is kind of where the swapping thing comes in. Around the time that I had started working for the bioplastics company, I learned about the just how horrible the fashion industry was. At first, I learned about all of the environmental stuff and how polluting it was. And it, it was a whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of that kind of moment. It's, yeah. When you learn, <laughs> it's never the same. 
Yeah, you can't unlearn that information. Mm -hmm. At least I can't. I suppose there are people that learn it and then tune it out and pretend it isn't there. (laughs) But I'm not that person. And so, but I have, you know, having been a performer and having been, um, you know, working in beauty so closely with fashion, it, it was... It was one of those things where, and also I just love clothes and I always have ever since I was little. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I realized, oh my God, I am I am a part of this. I have contributed to this problem and I don't want to do that anymore. That doesn't make me feel good. And so, you know, I was a, I was a thrifter, like thrill of the hunt, find the cool vintage piece that nobody has kind of a person. But I also shopped at all different tiers of regular stores from, you know, low end to high end and everything in between. And and I just really didn't feel very good about that. I once had a friend tell me that I gave away more clothes than she owned. And then to think that so much clothing that I probably dumped at thrift shops, you know, <laughs> made it into a landfill anyway. Yeah. It's just like, oh, I just had this reckoning. But I had a, clo- a closet full of clothes that I wasn't really wearing anymore. I didn't have time to sell them. I was too busy. And I never liked those places where you go and they give you hardly any money for your stuff. And if you're lucky, they take two things out of a giant bag (laughs) and you feel like a total styleless, you know, loser. Like, oh, my clothes. They think my clothes are gross and ugly or whatever. It's just like demoralizing that (laughs) whole experience. Yeah. And so, and it, it just didn't seem worth it. And so I thought, I wonder if I could just swap my clothes and so I literally Googled clothing swap Los Angeles, and lo and behold, there was a little tiny clothing swap club in my neighborhood of L.A., which is also really extra weird because L.A. is so big and so much sprawl, and I was living in this tiny little neighborhood on the west side. And But it, it really changed my life in terms of how I mixed up my wardrobe, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing that. I did it through both pregnancies, and I have been so many sizes, up and down, up and down. Um, and and I didn't have to buy a whole new wardrobe every time I was in different size. And I loved that, and I loved that it was better for the environment, and I loved that I wasn't, you know, enslaving people through my purchases, uh, you know, and all of these things that I now really think about. And so I didn't say to myself at that moment, oh, I'm going on a shopping ban. But it's essentially what happened was I basically just stopped buying brand new clothes, Mm -hmm. and that was in 2010. So I did that for a number of years, and then when... My second son was three months old and my other son was three. They, the person that was running the little clothing swap club decided she didn't want to do it anymore and she was closing it down. And I was devastated. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was like, wait, what? Oh, I don't want that to go away. I love swapping. It's so much better than trying to sell your clothes. And I didn't want to have to buy new stuff. And I liked I liked how it wasn't just a way to get things secondhand, but it was also a way for me to responsibly pass on mm-hmm. the clothes that I didn't want anymore, whether I was bored of it 
or it didn't fit anymore, or some combination thereof. And so then I just started, the the ideas just started percolating, you know, hmm, well, what if I started a clothing swap? What if it was online and it could reach people over a wider area and not just my little community, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's when I started building out the MVP. So that means minimum viable product Um, that's like the term in the tech world, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're have an idea for something. And, and so we did that. So, and, and then my husband is a, works in tech. And so he was essential to this whole thing. I mean, he wrote the algorithm for, we have this alternative currency that we created to make swapping really fair. We call it swap coin, but he wrote the algorithm for that. I mean, we worked on it together so that he knew kind of what was important to me and what I thought were the certain factors in a garment's value Mm -hmm. and, you know, what levers I thought should go up or down based on certain things like condition or season and that sort of thing. And then, um, and so we launched the MVP and we just tried it out and people liked it. So that's when we kind of took the next step and invested more in like really properly building out the technology so that it wasn't kind of just like a a thing that worked but not great, you know, and and we made it better. Um, And so that's kind of how it happened. But it's also insane. I mean, it's crazy that I started this with a toddler and an infant. And that infant (laughs) that was three months old when all of this craziness started is turning six (laughs) soon. Wow. So... um, yeah, it's it's a lot to think about. And I have all the mom guilt right. of, oh, well, because I, I work on this a lot. You know, oh, my goodness, should I, should I be working so much? You know, my kids often comment about how I work all the time. Aww. I know. And it, it's, it's like a little stab in the heart a little bit. At the same time, I do make a point of spending a lot of quality time with them. And so I feel like it is it is what it is. I think most people have to work that have kids. I don't I don't think that I mean whatever. The, sure there are stay-at-home moms or whatever, but that that just wasn't going to be me to be honest with you. I I need to activate my brain. I need to have a project. Mm-hmm. Maybe I went a little far with this one. But <laughs> But um, but all of that being said, um, you know, I think that hopefully it just, I don't know, just shows them that they have two parents that work and a mom that's like really passionate about what she's doing, I guess, most importantly. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. Um, I think you're an example. You're a role model. And like, I know it's hard to balance the two, but trust me, when your kids grow up, they're going to look back and be like, wow, my mom was so cool. <laughs> that would be nice. I think I think they will. I think they will. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy 
that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment. I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of April, St. Evans is supporting United Farm Workers Foundation, mobilizing farm workers and their organizations across the country to advocate for more equitable policies. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. 
The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the Eternal City. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. So, well, let's talk about clothing swapping. Um, you know, sure. first off, you mentioned that Swap Society has this currency mm-hmm. um, that yeah. makes it more fair, which I love that because I have always had a lot of anxiety, which I'm sure other people have too, about going to clothing swaps, bringing all kinds of bad clothes, and leaving with like a pair of pea-stained sweatpants. That's, <laughs> this hasn't happened. It's just I like to worry about things. So I've worried about yeah. that. Well, I think that, you know, when we acquire an item of clothing, we attach a lot to that item, especially if we spent a lot of money on Mm -hmm. it. And so we want to kind of feel like we're getting value back or like it's fair. I think it's part of why people feel so burned when they do those resale shops, whether in person or online. And, you know, the standard is that they pay out, you know, two to four percent. Mm-hmm. That's just the formula. And then they mark it up 10x, and that's the resale price. And that's just how it works. And it's not a judgment necessarily because, you know, it does cost money. All of this stuff is a service, and it costs money to do this, you know, to have these kinds of businesses. Um, that being said, I think as a consumer or, you know, as a person buying clothes, and then you go and you think, oh, I spent – however much, whatever you think is a lot, whether it's 100 or 300 or 1,000, whatever whatever you spent on it and whatever you kind of feel like, wow, that was, I spent a lot of money on that thing, you, you're going to feel like you, it's just not fair if you get 2% for what you paid mm-hmm. on it. That just doesn't feel fair. And if you go to a clothing swap event or a swap party at a friend's house, I understand why people are going to be hesitant to bring their nicer pieces because they're not sure if other people are going to bring their nicer pieces. Right. And will there be nicer pieces that are their style and their size? There are all of these mysterious things that have to come together to make that happen and make kind of everybody feel like it was really equal and fair. And so that's really where Swapcoin comes in. And so basically... It's not just the brand and original retail value, um, it's condition. And we take into account many different levels of condition and, uh, and, and season as well. And that's really because, you know, I don't think that it makes sense for someone to get quite as much if it's like the middle of summer and they send us a big chunky sweater, well, you know, nobody really wants that right, right now. Right, right. So, but I didn't want to restrict it. You know, some some of those online platforms, they require that you send things that are in season, but I didn't want people to feel like they had to think that much about it. I didn't want to mm-hmm. say, oh, we'll only take in season stuff. And so the solution was just that, well, you can still send it, but you'll get more if you send us stuff that's 
current season or all season. Tons of stuff is really any season, like a pair of jeans, right? right? You could wear that year round. And and so that's really what, what we did. And so people are comfortable sending us their higher value items because they know that it's it's going to be fair. How however they wind up spending that swap coin, it's going to be fair. And so what we've done is we've taken away markups. And and I felt really strongly about this as well. I mean, obviously, you know, there's so much work that goes into, you know, looking checking the garment for imperfections, steaming it, photographing it, listing it on the website, putting it in the warehouse, like picking and packing all the orders. We do all of that work. And so it it's one of those things where I I wanted the swap coin to really be the value of the garment. And so that's really the currency amongst the members and the people who are swapping. And then we charge service fees on top of that. So we have uh, a monthly fee, and that includes free shipping both ways. And then also everything you order is $5.99 plus swap coin. So basically, it doesn't matter if you're getting something designer or something fast fashion or something that doesn't have any tags. It's all the same service fee for us because it's the same amount of work for us regardless of the brand. Whereas if you're shopping resale or consignment, you're going to pay more, exponentially more, right, if it's a higher value item because the markup for the company is going to get higher Mm -hmm, and higher mm -hmm. based on the perceived value of that garment. And so we kind of took all of that away. And... That's basically the gist of it. Um, You know, we just wanted to make it really, I wanted to make it really easy for people. So when people sign up, we send them a welcome kit and it has, it's basically a bag with a prepaid mailing label and instructions for what we accept and what we don't. And then you fill that up and you leave it out for your letter carrier or drop it at your post office. And then when we get the bag, we process everything. And then it's an al- it's algorithmically determined, right? So it's not just people over here sitting around saying, I'm going to give this 10 <laughs> I was wondering about that because I was thinking once again, like if you go to Beacons or you go to Buffalo Exchange or something like that, anxiety of standing there and waiting to see how much money they're going to give you. It's so arbitrary. I know. Whew, yeah. 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 So, I mean, if you were to, for example, look around on our site and you picked a specific brand like J. Crew, for example, and you looked at all of the different J. Crew dresses, they'll all have a certain swap coin range. I mean, obviously, there are all these different variables, so they won't all be the same exact one, but it's very consistent. It is, so basically we built this really cool, easy to use backend system. So the people who work for us just have to check off a bunch of boxes for the most part. And then the algorithm does the rest. And so we don't even know what it's going to be until we kind of enter in all of that information. And, you know, and this algorithm tells us. And so it's super, super fair and people take it really seriously. Which I think is really fun and cool, you know, mm-hmm. but people really care about their balance and did they get the right amount. And so sometimes when people are new and they're first doing it, you know, they'll ask a lot of questions about it. But then once people get in the groove, you know, they just implicitly trust it because it's it's very consistent. 
And and so that's really cool. I mean, I like that people do feel, I think most of us have kind of that high-low wardrobe, right? We might invest in a few statement pieces or things that are kind of fancy schmancy once in a while. And then we have a bunch of kind of mid-range or even low-range stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was really important to me as well was that we accept all brands even things without the tags, because I think that a lot of resale platforms focus on designer Mm -hmm. and luxury brands. And I feel like, well, but what about all of the other stuff? Those clothes should also be worn. All of this wearable clothing that's out there in the world, we should wear it for as long as possible, regardless of what the brand is. And then we even take things that don't have the tags. We call them unknown. And what that means is you're just not going to get as much swap coin For that, so like if you send us a designer dress but you cut the tags out, you'll get about the same amount of swap coin for it as a fast fashion item, for example, because we don't we don't know what it Mm -hmm. is. So, uh, but one thing that I really love seeing, and this might be, I find it really cool, and maybe you'll agree, but our like our number two top selling brand, quote unquote brand, are unknown items. Interesting. yeah, I love that. I love, <laughs> I love it because I feel like great people don't care about the label. They don't care who made it because it's secondhand, and they just like the style and what it looks like. And it doesn't matter that it doesn't have a label in it. And that was really exciting to me because I think that we have become too obsessed about the label and the branding. Of, of these brands. And and so I, I just love to see that. I think it's really cool. We also accept all sizes. And we haven't quite grown our larger sizes as much as I would like. It just hasn't happened organically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I don't know. I, I'm, I've tried some ideas to kind of make it happen that haven't really taken off. But but if you, if somebody's listening and you're plus size, we definitely accept it, but we just don't have a ton. We don't have as much yet. But then it's like this chicken and the egg. I hate if people were to come on the site and say, oh, they don't have a lot of plus size. I'm not going to do it. And then I think it might be this kind of self-perpetuating cycle. Totally. But we accept everything. And kids. We do kids, baby, babies, and kids clothing as well. Awesome. I mean, this is amazing. I'm so excited that this exists in the world, you know? And I'm glad that you include the fast fashion and the things without labels because it is true. I mean, I guess ThreadUp accepts a lot of that stuff for resale, but I read recently that 40% of what they receive just gets like shredded or trashed or shipped overseas. So I know, I know. Um, it's it's not as great of a story as it seems like on the surface. So I'm excited to see people swapping this stuff. Yeah, but I will say, I mean, there are things that we get sent that we cannot accept. And I think that in general, sometimes people aren't great about checking the condition Mm -hmm, of their clothes mm -hmm. before they send it, either for resale or swapping or even to the thrift shop. I think that it's kind of this, there's this mentality in the culture of, I'm just going to dump it on them. Yes, totally. (laughs) I mean, like when we talk about someone like ThreadUp, I ultimately... I think selling your clothes on ThreadUp is less about recouping any of the expenses of owning those clothes and rather mm-hmm. they're doing a service where you can literally dump all this stuff in the box and they're going to yeah. deal with it for you, which is not – to me, I'm not saying that's okay, you know, but unfortunately I do think that's how a lot of people treat that service. 
Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is probably a big part of that is just the condition mm-hmm. of what they're getting on average. And they're at this massive scale. We're nowhere near <laughs> the size of a thread up. I'll just put that out there that we're a much, much smaller <laughs> scale. But um, but even at our scale, we we don't accept a lot of things. And it kind of hurts. It's painful. We all care. You know, everybody that that works at Swap Society, we all really care. It's kind of like we're we're saving these clothes from the landfill and we take it really seriously. It's almost like <laughs> saving stray pets, which I also rescue animals. But, but, you know, all of these little garments. And I'm trying to be better because sometimes what happens is I'll see something in the reject pile and I'll be like, I could wear that a few times, get a few more wears oh. out of it before it goes <laughs> I understand this feeling. I would be the same way. I would have a problem if I was working there. I would be like wearing all the stained clothes. Like, <laughs> I have a thing for all the holy sweaters. So people know to put – like if, if we get a holy cashmere sweater, put it aside. I'm going to wear it with the holes in it. I have a, I have a dream of doing some visible mending that just I never have time for. But I don't I care. I feel I just... this. I, this is me too. Like I, I find it like – I'm getting better about it, but I have like really unrealistic expectations for the actual time I have. Um, but I'm like, oh, I'm going to dye it and then I'm going to patch it and then I'm going to hem it. And yeah, it's going to be like 40 hours work, but it's going to be worth it. And then it's just like still hanging in my closet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then every once in a while, I like I did a closet purge recently where I said, I can't, I can't personally take this much of it on. Like, I also want to just love everything that I have in my closet. And, you know, so it's it's a process because, but we don't throw things in the trash. Um, we pass things on. We work with certain designers that like to upcycle. So, you know, if it's a silk blouse with armpit stains, you know, they'll cut around the stain and repurpose the oh, fabric. Cool. We also donate to different charities, um, you know, etc. So there are things that we do with the clothes. Obviously, when we get larger, well, that's the goal, the hope, right? right? But, you know, in the future, I I can see how we would need a different type of solution at at a bigger scale. Um, Because right now, it's kind of like, oh, look, oh, yeah, we have we have a few bags full. It's time. It's time to pass those on to someone. But eventually, I could see how that could be really a lot of effort Mm -hmm. to deal with. And it does cost money. I mean, I think that, you know, if you drop things off to a thrift shop, for example, and your idea is, I'm doing a good thing because somebody less fortunate might buy buy this garment or what have you, which is a, a little bit of a flawed thought process. But we, we could get more into that as well. But, <laughs> but I would say that, you know, I often see some of these thrift shops saying, please don't give us your ripped, stained, exactly. holy, Ugh. destroyed things because we have to pay to dispose of it. Because what people don't realize is that when you have that type of a business, whether it's a nonprofit or, or a for-profit thrift shop, um, it costs those entities money to get rid of the stuff that they can't use. And the same thing for a business like a ThreadUp, um, you know, they have to, you know, it's like there, there is an industry, obviously, where you can bail up stuff and you can ship it overseas and there's a certain rate for that. But then that's just dirtying, you know, other countries, mostly in the global south, that really don't need any more of our discarded clothing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're 
destroying a lot of these communities with our trashed clothes that ultimately is going to wind up in a landfill or incinerated anyway. And it's like, we, I think that we should take more responsibility for our, our stuff, our personal things. And I, that's part of why I love the Buy Nothing group because I can give something away and I'm giving it to a person. Right. I'm not pushing it off to some other entity and hoping that they're able to do something with it. So I actually don't really donate things to thrift shops as much as I used to because I really make an effort. It's kind of like, okay, well, I I took on this item. I either bought it or it was given to me or, or whatever, or I found it on the street because I'm a big dumpster diver. <laughs> me too. And, <laughs> and now I'm done with it. And now I'm going to try to give it to another person right. instead of this like, other place because there's no way right so like really taking that concept of there's no way kind of on a personal level I I love that yeah I I'm excited about this prospect of you growing and growing because I think it it's really easy for the fashion industry as a whole to see how you can be profitable and run a successful business selling things, right? It's like, oh, charge mm-hmm. the right price, market up the right amount, sell enough of the units, the end. But I'm excited by ideas and models that are very different, that don't actually involve making anything new, being mm-hmm. profitable. Because there's nothing wrong with making a profit, right? Like, this is how you pay your bills. This is how you grow your business. I think a lot of people would say, like, how can you make money off of swapping clothes? Like, that's the craziest idea I've ever had. But you've got the plan <laughs> there, you know? <clears throat> We've built it. We've built it. And the more people that do it, the the better. Because, you know, really, the way that we have priced it is with affordability in mind. And I really want to be able to attract the fast fashion shopper. I, it was really important to me that it wouldn't be a service Like rental, for example, where most people are priced out, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. how many people can afford to pay $100 a month to borrow four things at a time? Yeah, it's very expensive. It's very expensive. And then you don't even get to keep it unless you buy it. It's like this whole thing. And, And I just... And I know that sustainable fashion costs more if things are ethically produced and you're using responsibly harvested fibers that are organic or whatever. All of that stuff costs more money. And so I totally understand why a lot of people shop fast fashion because it's what they can afford. At the same time, it's like it's tough because, you know, we're operating in the United States and we're you know, in some ways competing pricing wise with what some of these fast fashion yeah. companies sell, sell their stuff for brand new. And I know that that's really challenging. At the same time, it's like, it takes so much work for each garment to be processed on our end. So really, we our business model really needs to be at a bigger scale for it to make financial sense. At the same time, I'm so passionate about it being super affordable and accessible for people that I'm just, you know, pushing through, just trying, trying to kind of get to that next level because I see so much opportunity for, for this model to grow. I think that sometimes it's just so different that I think sometimes it's just people don't, maybe don't get it right away or think, well, like, why would I pay this like monthly fee? And it's like, well, we have to have a monthly fee or we can't cover your shipping. Right. I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, and that sort of thing. But we made it really inexpensive. You know, one of the things that we thought about too was we, I didn't want people to feel limited in terms of how much they could order at any given time, which is why there's part membership, part per item service charge, mm-hmm. essentially, because some people buy a lot of stuff. And <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, like 20, 30 plus items at a time. And so, and I know that that might sound insane to some people, but some people are buying for themselves because their weight just changed mm-hmm. or they just got a new job or they're shopping for them and their kids or what have you. But I didn't want it to be, oh, we'll charge more per month and then you can swap X amount of items. It was like, no, I want it I want it to be free. And then also people that swap a lot, you know, they're spending more to swap a lot and that doesn't affect the people that just want to swap a little bit who don't have to kind of spend quite as much, if that makes right, sense. Right, right. No, it totally makes sense to me. I, I think that's really smart. So, like, what's your dream? What do you want? Like, if you could look back in a few years and be like, wow, I really did what I wanted to do with Swap Society, what would that be? Well, you know, one of the things that we focus on a lot, that I personally focus on a lot, and actually I just – started my own podcast <laughs> with this in mind, which is I I would love for I, I really try to advocate for change and like cultural change mm-hmm. and behavioral change and how we interact with our clothes and the world. And so I, I'm n- not in a judgmental way, right, but just right. in a like, here's this information. I think it's really important. And, you know, here are the reasons that you should buy less new stuff. You know, our hashtag is swap before you shop. I don't say don't shop, don't swap, don't shop or whatever. It's like people are still going to sometimes buy stuff. And I I think that that's fine. But if we slow down our consumption and we become more mindful, um, I would just really love to see more and more people doing that. And sometimes people will email us and say, hey, I just want to buy stuff. Can't I just buy stuff? And it's like, well, no. And I know that's so weird. And I think most business people would probably say, that is a bad idea. Just let people buy whatever they want. But it's kind I, – I guess I would just love to really grow this community. You know, we're this growing community of women across the United States that are kind of collectively – slowing down our consumption and sharing our clothes with each other. We don't necessarily know who sent what or who we're swapping with, but but we are this community of people. And I would just love to see more and more of that happening. And I think that, you know, this type of service has the opportunity to make it really easy for people. It's like, oh, you like to shop online? Great. This is online. It's easy to use. You could do it late at night, mm-hmm. you know, if you can't sleep or whatever. Whatever works for you, you know, no judgment. And just make it really easy to kind of send your clothes back and forth and have it be a way to do that. I would I would love to just see more and more people kind of coming on board. I think sometimes you know, we're all talking to each other, people that are focused on sustainable fashion and changing the fashion industry. Uh, but there are still the vast majority of people out there that aren't aware even of what's going on. So it's always like, how do we reach those people? I would love to become more mainstream so that it becomes more normal for people 
to not buy new stuff and less normal to buy more new stuff. And but also with some kind of optimism in it, I I have to say that whew, the echo anxiety is really intense. Like I every day is like a new day and I'm I'm trying to be really positive, but one of the things that I'm really focusing on with the podcast is like this idea of like, well, what's keeping you optimistic? Because I need, mm-hmm, I need mm-hmm. to know. So maybe it will help totally. me because the world feels like it's just, it's so intense. It's so much. And sometimes it feels really fluffy, like, oh, we're swapping clothes. And I think that sometimes people in, even in the, you know, environmental advocacy world don't take what we're doing as seriously, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, right? About how it's like, oh, well, it's like very female and it doesn't matter, but it, it does, does matter, matter because yeah. we're, uh, yeah, I mean, the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere alone, the water pollution, the waste, I mean, at all phases of the the production of a garment, it's, you know, it's so impactful and it's, and these fashion companies are just growing at these insane <sighs> rates. And so, you know, how how do we combat that? So I would love to see, you know, people swapping more mm. and shopping secondhand more and kind of doing it together and, and knowing that, oh, hey, we're, we're doing this together and it's good. It's kind of like that. I know I keep talking about my Buy Nothing group, but I've met so many cool people through that group and people are willing to kind of pass their things to one another and support one another and help one another. And I think we just need more ways to connect. I think we've become more isolated in society in a lot of ways. And so I think the more things we can do together like this, the the better the world will be. We do have the opportunity to make a positive impact, even if it's, you know, one piece of trash picked up off the beach at a time or one swapped garment at a time or, or whatever it is. Absolutely. I agree. I I like that optimism. I think that like working in this area is really, it's really focused on community. And it's like, it's what brings you joy and optimism in the face of so many difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a source of energy and motivation. Yeah. It's really, really important. I, I, I want – there are so many people working sort of as islands on this, maybe with their own little, like, community around them. And what we really need to do is mm-hmm. merge all of these communities together uh, and build an even larger chain of support. Because I do think that with all of these people who care so much, who are meeting other like-minded people who care so much too, that we actually have the power to change minds and educate people because as you said most most people don't know any of this stuff that unfortunately we know i mean fortunately we know it but maybe it's more unfortunate that they don't know i don't know but when they find out (laughs) they might think otherwise you know (laughs) um well you know we've been talking for almost two hours now so (laughs) i told you i was like we could probably talk for a hundred hours so i thought maybe there's like one last thing i wanted to ask you is like if you were gonna like what would be your parting thought, your piece of advice, your catchphrase that's going to motivate everyone? What would you say to everyone as your last, as your outro on this episode? (laughs) I would say that, um, and I, and I think, I would say that if you are, if, if it makes you feel uncomfortable 
to not buy something, like this idea of like stopping shopping, for example, you know, I don't know, really kind of ask yourself why, you know, take some, take a moment to, to really think about it. Because I will say that I hardly ever buy anything, anything brand new. That's amazing. (laughs) And it's so, it's getting easier and easier. Mm -hmm. And whether it's furniture or clothes or whatever it might be, I would say just try it out, even if it feels uncomfortable or weird, because the reality is that we need to stop consuming so much. If we stop consuming so much, the companies aren't going to produce as much because they're not going to, it's not going to make financial sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not to put the blame on the consumers, and I don't even like that word, but but whatever, it is what it is. But it's like, you know, how can we change the world in our own ways. And I think we can do that by supporting each other and also just becoming more mindful about all of the things that we do. I think that we live in such a consumeristic society Mm -hmm. and the messages are everywhere and it's hard to tune it out sometimes, but our value is not in the stuff that we buy. Our value is totally different. And so none of that stuff really matters. I mean, yeah, you need certain things for living, etc. But like, try to focus more on what you need. And if it's something that you just want, like maybe mm, simmer on it a little bit and really Mm -hmm. think about, do I really need that thing? Is what is that really going to do for me? Is that really going to improve my life? And, and, you know, just try to have kind of a, a change in thinking and, and habits. I love that. It's so true. You know, like, it's, it is hard to, it, it's uncomfortable to make that change. But ultimately, I think it helps you realize yourself a lot more. Mm-hmm. And who you really yeah. are. It's, it's weird. I've, I started that journey at the beginning of the pandemic. And of course, it was easier because I didn't have a job and I was stuck at home playing The Sims which I now I'm talking about it. I like really want to just go sit on the couch and play The Sims. It's been too long, but <laughs> I it was uncomfortable. It was like, what do I do when I'm like, you know, bored at work or you know, laying on the couch watching TV and like not being very captivated? I would look at stuff to buy on the internet, right? Um, mm-hmm. It feels good to get away from that, and I find that I have time for other things that are a lot more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nicole. This was such a delight. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, hopefully someday we can hang out in person. I know. It'd be <laughs> so fun. Because I feel like I'm, I keep finding my people. Like, we're all finding each other. It's true. I, it's true. I feel like, for me, you know, the pandemic is a time that has kept me apart from so many people who matter to me. But I also made yeah. all these incredible new friends, thanks to Close Horse, who I talk to regularly, that I would have never met before. Thanks again to Nicole for spending so much time with me. You can find out more about Swap Society at swapsociety.co and on Instagram at Swap Society. All of this will be in the show notes. And if you're interested in trying Swap Society, which you should, you can get 15% off membership for new members by using promo code CLOSEHORSE. 
No, this isn't a commercial or a paid partnership. We just thought it might entice you to try out the magic of online clothing swapping. If you do try it, please report back to me. I want to hear all about it. Technology can lead to some pretty terrible things. Overconsumption of iPhones, Elon Musk, Twitter battles, Amazon. So much stuff that's happening on Instagram and Reddit right now. But it can also be used for the power of good, like shifting into a circular economy via swapping, buying nothing groups, and peer-to-peer selling. And I am here for it. I believe that the future can be better. And you know what? It will be with all of us involved. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. I'll be taking next week off because, drum roll please, are you hearing the drum roll? I'm not doing it. Are you hearing it? Imagine it. You know what a drum sounds like. Dylan and their partner Ryan are visiting me here in Austin, so I'm taking next weekend off from close horsing, but I'll be back the week after that with more stories of circularity. If you like what you're hearing here, please leave a rating and or just go extra, do them both, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, please tell a friend. That's like the most important thing you can do. If you'd like to support my work here on Close Horse, you can go check out patreon.com slash Close Horse Podcast. And of course, thank you as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White, the only other person who works on this darn thing, for his music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 